2: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: A wild ride through Australia, flying high with a woman lost to history, and an indigenous coming-of-age story. This is Chapter 211 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and coming up... Adrian McKinty shares how crappy B-horror movies from the 70s shaped his imagination and his thriller writing. Don Daylor introduces us to a woman we should know, but don't, because of a historical fluke. And young adult debut novelist Jen Ferguson shares why her book is for any reader who has big feelings. In his new summer thriller, The Island, best-selling Uber driver-turned-author Adrian McKinty will have you wondering, what would you do if you accidentally killed someone? Set on a remote Australian island, his domestic thriller pits family against family in a fight for survival. And believe it or not, his story is based on a personal real-life incident. So when I've been talking to people and telling them about this last book I've read, I've been calling it a mashup of Survivor meets Deliverance meets Steve Irwin Crocodile Hunter. That's (laughs) That's and- <laughs> good.
0: Yeah, it works for me.
1: So I find it really fascinating that the germ from the story started it is something that actually happened to you in real life, but maybe didn't go as
0: far. No, no, no absolutely. Um, we lived in Australia for ten years, and um, I was always taking the kids and the misses, sometimes reluctantly, on uh, long road trips. And um, speaking of Mad Max, we went up to um, the the place where they filmed Mad Max is just about an hour north of Melbourne. So we went to all those roads and that landscape. It was amazing. And if you go about another five or six hours further north, you're into that landscape where they filmed The Road Warrior, Mad Max 2. So I was always up for these adventures. Um, On one of the adventures, this one wasn't quite as successful. We went to this island off the coast of Victoria and we got the ferry over it was it was february in australia so it's about 42 43 degrees celsius which is about 112 uh, fahrenheit and it's that no ozone layer australian heat where it just <laughs> bakes down on you so we got this ferry over and it was immediately weird um uh, because there's, a, there's an island nearby where a lot of tourists go called Phillip Island, where um, they have these little fairy penguins that a lot of people are interested in. Um, but that had no interest to me because it's where the tourists went. So I went to this off the beaten track place, which I called Dutch Island in the book. And um, it was strange immediately because when we got the ferry over. The guy driving the ferry was driving it with his foot and drinking a can of beer he was driving the little steering wheel thing tiny little wheel with his foot drinking a can of beer meanwhile telling us about these shark infested waters that were filled with tiger sharks and blue sharks and um so i was thinking you know if something goes wrong if you capsize the ferry here aren't we all dead um but that didn't seem to bother him Uh, and we land and and then it got a bit weirder because the very first thing we see was um, Two guys walking around with shotguns over their shoulders, and um, and you never see long guns in Australia because they have incredibly strict gun controls. You just you see cops sometimes with uh, revolvers, uh, but you never ever see long guns. Um, so that was extremely peculiar. And then we heard a lot of gunfire all over the island because they were extirpating the uh, local rabbit population. We found out later. But just so weird, the first thing you see is these guys with the shotguns and then you hear all this gunfire everywhere. And I thought, okay, fair enough. Um, we're driving on this road and there's nothing to see. It's just this tall spinifex grass that they have there in Oz, this sort of yellowy white brittle grass. And the kids are have checked out. Um, there's no there's no Wi-Fi or phone signal, but they're on these little portable DVD player things. so they're in the back seat doing that. And uh, the wife's looking at me just going, well, Adrian, this is another uh, fine mess you've got us into this place. So we stopped at this farm for, to get uh, some drinks of water or whatever. And then that's when the oddness all kicked up another notch um, because uh, at the farm, they knew everything about us. Um, uh, like we'd come from Melbourne, who we were you know, ages of our kids and everything. And uh, it turns out the guy in the ferry had walkie-talkied um, our information to them. And it turns out everyone on this island was related. They were all one large extended family. So that was odd um, that they all knew all about us. And then one of the guys, I didn't hear this, but my wife overheard it said, an inappropriate comment about one of my daughters um so um Lead says to me look let's just get out of here and um we'd driven around and we'd seen what there was to see and i said yeah yeah let's go and then i looked at my watch and it was 10 past three and the guy driving the ferry had been incredibly strict with us he said the last ferry goes at 3 30. i don't take anybody back after then um and um and i thought oh my god we might have to sleep in the car on this island overnight what a nightmare so i said kids kids quickly get in the car get in the car we got in the car um got in the front seat and i floored it and i'm driving down this road um towards the towards the ferry just flooring it and then suddenly out of the spin effects this tall grass a lady on a bicycle comes just turns right out in front of us on the road and, um, you know, you, you just your your adrenaline going really hard and you memorize all the details. And I noticed that she was wearing a hearing aid. Um, but the hearing aid must have been turned on or the battery was dead or something because I honked the horn and slammed on the brakes. And uh, so she was like here and um, we were coming like here and the car just shuddered to a halt. And then she kept on going down the road. And uh, completely oblivious, never knew that we were there. Um, and we had missed her by oof, nine, 10 yards. And I am shaking at the steering wheel, as you do after any kind of road accident, anything involving a car, you're always like, and I was just shaking at the steering wheel. And to sort of break the tension a bit, I said to the missus, um, you know, if we'd hit her, we would never have got off this island alive. And and she said perfectly seriously, I don't think we would have. And so a few years later, when I was in New York and I was trying to think of um, another book to write, sort of I I I, I had signed this two book deal with Little Brown, and um, I you know there'd been some talk about me doing a sequel to The Chain, and I uh, which is my last book, and there's no way I was ever going to do that because. I love the way that ended. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I didn't want to do a sequel. But then I thought, well, maybe this could be a sort of thematic sequel. Um, This family on the run on this island. And uh, unlike in real life, where we didn't hit her, they do hit her. And then you have all the moral dilemmas, all the tension, all the drama. Um, these Americans in this world of which they know nothing. And it's kind of a fight to survive, but also um, it's a family struggle as well. They, um, There's a, um, did you ever see the Al Pacino movie uh, Any Given Sunday?
1: Maybe a while back.
0: Football movie. And there's a bit where the team is in complete dysfunction and chaos before the big game. And Pacino gives this fantastic speech where he, talks about, we have to heal ourselves first before we can go out and do battle with the other team. And and I was thinking, yeah, this family has to heal itself as well as survive in this island. And they have to do the healing before they can do anything else. And so I really love that idea. And I love that idea of sort of motherhood and um, this very far too young woman Um, who shouldn't really have any responsibility for these kids at all, um, is driven into this horrible situation of having to look after these kids. Uh, In in fact, not even just look after them, but save their lives. And so I like those sort of connections with my previous book, um, even though it's got nothing really to do with the, the previous book at all.
1: I'm glad to hear, though, that you see it as sort of a thematic sequel because I was reading this book and I'm thinking I love the chain that you either are like you like to put parental figures through the ringer because you did that in the chain. You do that in this one. And it kind of got me wondering, like, are you one of those dads who, like, always imagine the worst case scenario and this is your therapy to, like, write it out and get it all out there? (laughs)
0: Absolutely. I imagine like the worst case happening. And, and, and I, I love doing those family road trips, but you should see the level of over-preparation I do. <laughs> like I have like a jug of water, um, like a 10-gallon jug of water, spare gasoline, you know. I have actual paper maps in case Wi-Fi goes out. And, uh, you know, have an app. Actual physical compass as well, in case. I mean, nothing has ever touched wood. Nothing has ever really gone wrong. But yeah, I I really do over prepare. And it's funny you mentioned Deliverance because I think maybe those kind of movies warped my head a bit. Um, (laughs) Because I grew up in the (laughs) eighties. I grew up in the eighties, and all those the videos that we watched were all those seventies videos that were in the video stores back then, the eighties and nineties. And um, in 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 Britain and Ireland, we had this this category of films called video nasties. And they were, they were the videos that were so bad that they couldn't even be rated and shown in uh, movie theaters. So there was like the in the UK I think there was there was the U rating, there was PG, there was 15 then there was the X rating. And then there were the unrated films that were so depraved, no one was ever allowed to see them. So when you're a, like a 12 year old boy, that's all you ever wanted to see. Like you went straight to the unrated video nasty section of the of the video store. So I remember just seeing these films far, far too young and like, um, like uh, films much worse than Deliverance. Um, like I Spit In Your Grave and Last House On The Left and uh texas chainsaw and these horrific movies but with all the same theme never leave your house um if you go outside the city these people are waiting for you and uh, so yeah 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 so i think that probably put this um deep paranoia into my into my brain
1: well, you've made me a little bit paranoid because after reading this book, I kind of want to go take a survivalist course somewhere and like be that overprepared person with the extra water and the paper maps and the, the extra gas. It's
0: so funny the, the, one of the movies is is I Spit in Your Grave, which is not a good movie by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's a terrible film. Uh, it's a real just exploit, exploitation movie from the 70s. But the the the, the idea of the movie is simple. A writer who lives in Manhattan goes to a cabin in upstate New York um, to finish her new book and then meets the locals and terrible things happen. <laughs> and, and then the whole final act of the movie is her at war with the the, the, the the people in the cabin. And the number of times people have offered me cabins in upstate New York, uh, <laughs> go write it. And I've just said no, because <laughs> I'm sure it would be lovely and I would have a great time up there and I would get so much work done, but just that movie's playing in my head. And so Adrian, you were warned. You're, <laughs> you're now a writer who lives in Manhattan and you're going to take this cabin in upstate New York. Are you Don't crazy? So Listen,
1: I'm a native New Yorker. You, you couldn't pay me all the money in the world to go live in an upstate New York cabin. <laughs> yes. I exact. like the city where there, where there are lots of people you could hide amongst.
2: Yes,
0: that's true.
1: So, you know, you have this crazy family living on this island. And mm-hmm. I do like how you how you mess with the reader's head because at, at a certain point of the book, you have a second guessing whether or not they're really bad. Right. And But I do want to say that amongst all of them, you have this one, I would call her a good character. She's a kid. So you've got her. She's blood of this family. But she really seems to be like the only good egg, which kind of kind of leads you to think, you know, even if uh, it like the whole nature versus nurture kind of conversation.
0: I knew I, I had to make them bad uh, because otherwise there could be a negotiated settlement to all this. So I had to make them bad, but I didn't want to make them one dimensionally bad. So I tried to make Nev a little bit more dimensional and I tried to make Matt a little bit more dimensional. And and then I also didn't want to be. I also didn't want to be the ugly American writing about Australia um, and making them all just to be monsters. So I totally cheated um, and I made Ma come from Belfast, which is where I'm from. And I thought, well, no one can accuse me of being the ugly American now because this is an interior critique and you're allowed to do interior critiques, you know, (laughs) in, in, in this kind of novel. So that's a total cheat. That was an absolute cop out, but um, I, I, you know I had to do that to get to get away with that story. And then, yeah, as you say, you know, within that there's this you know little interesting dimension. And also, I think uh, I, I thought it was important that Matt makes the speech. I think it's Matt. Maybe it's one of the other characters. I can't remember. But says, "Look, we're not the bad guys. You came over here to our home and did a terrible thing, and then tried to cover it up." Like, you're the bad guys here. And um, and as a reader, it's gone so far by that stage. You're going, don't listen to this guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't be swayed by this. But still, you know, it, it, it's put out there. You know, that is actually physically true. And um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's you, you wanted to, to give it a little bit more moral texture.
1: I know you had a lot of interest for the chain for a screen adaptation are you getting that kind of attention for this one as well
0: yeah i mean it's been um optioned by um hulu um and their plan is to do a a limited series and um uh, on this i'd watch the
1: heck out of that
0: (laughs) very exciting um i i kind of don't think they could actually film on the real island itself i was actually thinking about this this morning i said wouldn't it be awesome if they went there and filmed in the real island with the real people as extras and you know but then i thought but there's no resources on this island for a film production and there's no fresh water there's there's barely any roads there's no electricity uh there's no wi-fi service so my guess is that would just be physically impossible mm-hmm. um you just actually couldn't do that i mean were the actors going to go in their downtime there's no <laughs> there's power there. for any of the trailers um so i was thinking it would not be awesome and then i think but that that would probably never ever happen because the location is just so it's just so extreme
1: uh maybe there's a california desert somewhere that
0: uh probably i mean. That, I'm, I'm sure that um, there'll be plenty of little or uh, an island. I was thinking uh, maybe an island off the Carolina coast or something, or somewhere like that. You know, I, I import I don't know. a few,
1: import a koala bear too.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, get a few koalas and cook up, <laughs> up in the trees.
1: So, how do you plan on torturing parents next?
0: Well, um, I, I I have a couple of different plans for the next book. Um, and I'm probably going to spend this summer um, seeing which one of those two is the best goer. But I don't want to say too much about it now because I don't want to jinx it. Um, there's, I've got two ideas. that I'm not going to do both. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. But I'm going to do one or the other of them um, over the next few weeks. I'm just going to make a decision and do it.
1: All right. Well, I know even if you don't, I mean, you're not going to tell us anything, but I know that when the time comes, It's gonna be a great summer read that will keep us on the edge of our seat for the entire length of the book.
0: Oh, thank you very much. I was just gonna say one more thing. Um, Anytime I would get stuck in, and this is true, and it's a terrible thing to say, but anytime I would get stuck in The Chain or The Island, um, and, and that didn't happen much. I mean, both books sort of flowed fairly easily, but anytime I would get stuck, I would always say to myself, what's the worst thing that could happen now? And then I would just go, ah, this would be very, very bad. And then I would start writing it. So that's probably what I'm going to use for the next one as well. Just the, what's the worst thing that could happen now to these per per people?
1: All those horrible <laughs> movies you watched are like just come all that time you spent. If, you're, if your mom or your dad thought you were wasting your life away. It is now all coming to fruition.
0: Yes, you were totally wrong.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Watch those movies all summer long. (laughs) Adrian McKinty, thank you so much for your time today. Go out and get the island. It's really enjoyable.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs
1: shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. If I say historic female aviator, what's the first name that pops into your head? Odds are, it's Amelia Earhart. But it turns out a woman named Harriet Quimby was sitting in the pilot seat decades before Earhart ever did. In fact, Quimby was one of Earhart's inspirations. So why do so few people know about her? A lot of it has to actually do with a cruel twist of fate. But author and news correspondent Don Daylor seeks to shine a light on Quimby's accomplishments in his new book, Fearless, Harriet Quimby, A Life Without Limits. I first discovered Harriet by picking up this book and reading it. Tell me how you first stumbled across her and her story.
3: I know, you know, this as, as a reporter, you end up reading a lot of obscure things. It's just kind of like uh, an addiction that we have. Some of it is looking for stories and some of it is just, I think what drives us as journalists is just a curiosity about the world and about other people. I mean, that's really what has, has been my main focus. Most of my life is just things that I didn't know that I want to know. So I was reading this obscure aviation journal years ago when I was living out in Los Angeles and I stumbled upon a few paragraphs about this amazing woman that I, I was shocked that I'd never heard of before. Because when you look at actually all the things that she did in the you know the early 1900s when people just weren't doing these things, uh, it was amazing to me that nobody knew about her and that I personally didn't know about her. So I started doing a little bit more digging, not with anything you know, behind that other than just curiosity. And the more I found out about her, the more I was fascinated. So eventually I wrote a screenplay about her. I was living in LA. That's what people do in LA. You know, people have lattes in New York. People write screenplays. (laughs) So (laughs) that's what I did. I actually had a degree in screenwriting. So I knew a little bit about what I was doing, but um, it got optioned by uh, a major producer in Hollywood. Uh, a guy named bill mcdonald who did sliver and a number of other really big movies um but as you know what's often the case he wasn't able to raise enough money to make the movie so it kind of languished and then years later i i was uh, i'd written a couple and published a couple novels and years later i was talking with my agent about you know what are we going to do next i had a couple ideas about new novels and things and for whatever reason Harriet Quinby popped into my brain during that conversation. And I mentioned the story to her and she was blown away. She had never heard, like most of us had never heard about this woman and, and her accomplishments. And, you know, the more I told her, the more she said, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. I said, I've, I've never written a, a nonfiction. I've never written a biography. She said, you're a journalist. <laughs> this, this is what you do. You can do this. Just, you know, um, Wrote up a proposal, and within a week we had a publisher who was in on it, which was just incredible because, as you know, getting any interest in a new book is, is impossible. It's just the hardest thing in the world is to get a publisher interested in something you've written. So to have a reaction that quickly was just really encouraging to us to, to, re- to delve into this project.
1: So considering you, it was a screenplay first, and then you had to tweak it for a book format and pitch it, what's your, what's your sales pitch for readers to pick up this book?
3: This is one of the most amazing people, not just woman, people you've never heard of. The things that she did were so far ahead of her times. I mean, she was born on a dirt farm in Michigan, had nothing, was, was the poorest of the poor, her family moved to California and she discovered that she was talented in writing. So she started contributing articles to the San Francisco Chronicle and the San Francisco, San Francisco Call and got published. And that led to her eventually becoming uh, a correspondent for Leslie's Illustrated Weekly in New York City, which in its day was like the People magazine of the time. It was very popular. And she wrote about everything. She traveled the world as a foreign correspondent. You know, she wrote on women's issues. She wrote about automobiles, which were new. And then eventually she turned her sights. So, so my pitch about Harriet Quimby and, and this book fearless is her story should be known. Her name should be mentioned in the same breath as Amelia Earhart. She was that kind of a trend breaker but because of a twist of fate nobody knows about her. She's not in most of the history books and she disappeared and I just I think that's wrong and I'm hoping that people will know and give her her rightful due.
1: I know she kind of got a taste of what aviation or the early days of aviation was like by writing a story. Did yeah. you feel any sort of kinship? Because I know that there have probably been stories that you've gone out on that's piqued your interest. You're like, you know what, maybe I'm going to try this and really get into it. And then you end- eventually end up doing stories about doing this thing, right? That's so true.
3: You know, and and honestly, that's one of the best things about being a journalist is it, it takes you into different worlds and you meet different people whom – You know, you had no idea the 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 incredible things that they were doing. So um, I love that part of journalism. I love the discovery. I love the meeting people and hearing their stories. So, yeah. So so Harriet was probably first introduced to aviation uh, when the first air show came to the United States and it was at a place called Dominguez Field in Los Angeles and it was in 1910 and There are some reports that she was there to research an article. She never wrote an article about that air show We don't know why But she had been kind of following the development the science of aviation. She wrote an early article um, In 1909 she wrote about a a, a a japanese He ended up being a japanese spy for the japanese military who had come to the u.s to study our buzzards because they were trying to develop aircraft. Now keep in mind the Wright brothers first flew in 1903. So this wasn't that much later than when they first flew. And they and this this person was was looking at the flights of buzzards, single wing creatures by the way. The Wright brothers flew a biplane and they and she found out about it and did a story about this guy, interviewed him um and that's what really i think first piqued her interest and then she was given the assignment in 1910 to go to um the belmont aviation meet on long island and she went there and she saw the huge crowds there was so much interest in aviation in the day even though people were still trying to figure it out they were Inventing ridiculous looking aircraft with multiple wings or with a circular whirly thing or you know I mean they are flapping wings even they people didn't know Scientists didn't yet know everything about aviation. So it was very much in the learning stage But she went to this and she watched a race It was the inaugural Statue of Liberty race where these pilots were to fly. It was a time trial. They were to fly from the the field in Belmont and fly around Statue of Liberty and come back. And whoever did it fastest won. And there was a guy named John Moison, who was this really handsome daredevil, former soldier of fortune, just kind of the person who would be attracted to risky, (laughs) life-threatening adventures like this, who wanted, by breaking all the rules, he flew over Brooklyn when everybody went around it because they were afraid they would crash into the church spires and things like that. And he won this thing, and that inspired her to learn. So she confronted him that night at a restaurant and said, you're going to teach me how to fly. And he's like, you're a woman. And she's like, I don't care. I'm going to learn how to fly. And his little sister, Matilde raised her hand and said, well, if you're teaching her, you're teaching me. <laughs> Harriet was the first woman in America to get a pilot's license. Matilde was the second.
1: You obviously did tons of research yeah. for this book. Is there stuff like where did you go? What did what did you tap and is there I'm sure that there you have a pile of things that that you couldn't even get into the book because there was just so much there.
3: It's so rich. It's so true. It's such a rich period of our history. I mean, you think about the fact that a year before Harriet started her pilot's lessons, 100 pilots perished in crashes because they didn't know what they were doing. The science wasn't there yet. The physics weren't understood yet. So these brave, courageous, fearless people um, were pioneers in this science. And they, and they, um, they took chances and they knew the risks. She knew the risks when you started this. I had a box of the research from way back in LA when I did the, the screenplay, and I don't know how, maybe I'm a hoarder, I don't know, but I still have that box of research. So that was the good basis for it when the publisher came on from Princeton's Press and said, you know, we want to do this. So I had that, but there was so much more available now than was available back then because of computers and the digitalization of of newspapers, New York Times, the Boston Herald, all these newspapers that had done these stories in there. Um, I would advise people not to launch a a research project during a pandemic (laughs) because because all of a sudden I couldn't go to the government buildings. I, I couldn't go to even libraries. They were all shuttered and so I, the, the places where I had been spending all this time, you know, on the old style of microfiche and things like that, I didn't have access to that. But luckily, there was so much available online on digital archives and things like that, that I spent a lot of time just researching online. And you know, it's really funny. I, I, the way that things work with journalists, and I know you this, is a one little thread that you start pulling at leads to five threads. And that leads to leads to 100 threads. And, and that's what happened. I actually just on Facebook, found the granddaughter of the man who taught Harriet how to fly. Oh, wow. And she gave us so much information and family stories and photographs and things like that. I mean, that's how journalism works. It's like you start scratching at this little thing, and it starts leading to other things. And that's, What's so fun about it and the detective work that is so fulfilling. And, you know, I, I, I heard through the grapevine that there was actual film footage of Harriet's attempt to cross the channel. I couldn't find it anywhere and it took forever. And I found it in an, in the national Australian film archives had one copy of this film and I have no idea why it ended up there and why it wasn't elsewhere. But I track that down and it's so wonderful to watch because she's alive. She's not just photographs and stories. She's this living human being, you know. And she's before she gets on the plane, she has her girlfriends come up and, you know, she adjusts her scarves and everything and, and then her climbs purple on board the fly plane.
1: suit, right? It's a purple yes. fly suit that she likes to wear. <laughs> that
3: flight that. suit that she designed is one of the many things that sets her apart. She knew that being the first woman to take flying lessons was going to get attention mm. because she was in the media so she knew these things were going to garner attention so she was friends because she was also a drama critic and theater critic and was was in that societal kind of realm she had a friend who was one of the leading designers <laughs> clothing designers of the day so she talked him into helping her design a flight suit and she said i wanted to be able to disguise my gender at first but then i wanted it to look good so she, it was it had purple silk with a wool backing because you know it at they they were sitting in basically a wooden canvas plane in a lawn chair out in the open so they it was cold up there at the altitude so she had to have it warm it had a hood and it went down into her long calf-length boots and it was plum colored silk gorgeous color <laughs> but what she did was She designed it where there was a hidden cord that she could pull and it flowed from pantaloons into a gown (laughs) because she had to look good when the time came. (laughs) And it's funny because while she was taking lessons, she was almost finished with her lessons and her plane, she was going on takeoff and her, one of the wheels hit a mound and it crumpled the undercarriage and it was a minor crash didn't hurt her didn't do anything like that but there were some reporters nearby who were covering the early days of aviation and they came running over and harriet climbs out of the plane and they come screeching up to a halt staring at her and she pulls her hood down pulls the cord it flows into the gown and she introduces herself to them and the next day the new york times said woman in pants Flying on Long Island. <laughs> and, and she was outed at that moment, but it became the big thing. She was concerned. And the reason that she hid what she was doing is because there was so much resistance in the day to women doing things that men do. I mean, women couldn't even vote, they weren't supposed to drive cars.
1: You and know. she and, did and that she, too, right? She
3: did. She <laughs> was one of the first women to not only learn how to drive a car, but she owned cars. She owned one when she lived out in San Francisco. And then when she moved to New York, she owned a little yellow convertible, what they called a runabout then. And she would drive around and she loved speed. She did a story about the precursor of the Grand Prix auto racing. Um, And she talked her way onto a race car during a a time trial, one of the early time trials, and went over 100 miles an hour. Now, this was a day when cars went eight miles an hour, when the speed limit in most places were 10 miles an hour. And she went over 100 miles an hour. That shows really the kind of courage that this woman had. She was absolutely amazing and just would not let you know, the clergy of the day, the politicians or any of the societal restraints stop her from pursuing what she knew that she could do.
1: I want to keep some of her mystery because I think your your book is full of all these great little stories. But I did want to note that I found it very ironic that she is a journalist on one of the the day that she should have been front page news, she was scooped by probably one of the biggest stories of the century, which I think is every every reporter's fear is that you have the big story and just like that because of circumstance something happens. But we're gonna keep that a secret because I want people to read that in the book because <laughs> you don't expect it.
3: <laughs> you don't, you know, and, and in all honesty, that that's why we don't know her name. That's why she's not in the history books. It's because what she did, her greatest accomplishment happened when one of the greatest tragedies in the world happened. And so all the newspapers all over the world had other headlines. Whereas had that not happened, had that tragic twist of fate not happened, she would have been on the front page of every newspaper in the world. She would have had a ticker tape parade in New York City. She would have had speeches and Honestly, there would be schools named after her. I totally believe that. She was so far ahead of her time. And this little twist of fate stopped the world from knowing her story. And I'm really sincerely hoping that we all know her name now.
1: What do you want readers to take away from the life she lived and the things she was able to to accomplish?
3: Harriet Quimby said it in her own words. If you are afraid, you will never succeed. you It's natural to be concerned. It's natural to realize that what I'm doing has risks. But what she decided was within reason and, and being careful, because she was one of the first pilots to do what's called a pre-flight check, where she her, herself, not her mechanic, she checked every bolt and wire on her airplane. So she said, I'm not being reckless. I'm being careful. But don't be afraid to pursue your dreams. Don't be afraid to do what society tells you you can't do. Do what you believe you can do and enjoy the results of that. Just enjoy the joy that comes from trying something that everybody says you can't do.
1: She was a woman born in the wrong time. (laughs) She really was.
3: She she was. I mean, can you imagine? I, I mean, okay, A, she was... So incredibly intelligent. You think about the fact that she she grew up in a one room schoolhouse in in you know the Lower Peninsula of Michigan, got the the basics of education. But her mother said, "You're not going to be hard." You know, her mother said, "You're not going to be limited by your station in life. The fact that we're poor is not going to limit you." So her mother made sure that she learned much more than this one little single school, single room schoolhouse would teach her. And Harriet continued to read voraciously and learn. So she was incredibly well-educated, but it was self-education. When you read her articles that she wrote, and she wrote about 250 articles over a period of nine or 10 years, they're so beautifully written and so descriptive. And and I mean, and, you know, some of it is, is so obvious that she saw beyond the, the the place where she was, she was fascinated by other cultures. She ended up traveling the world when it was a very unusual thing to do. She went to Africa and Egypt and Latin America and Bahamas and places like that when travel took months to get anywhere. But she did that. And I really think that that you know she it, it, I, I think she might have been an astronaut if she was in our day and age. I really do. I think that's the kind of person that she was. And we see it now, a direct line between the female astronauts today, astronauts in general, but the female astronauts today, and Harriet Quimby. There is a direct line. Amelia Earhart herself credits Harriet Quimby with inspiring her to want to learn how to fly. And she said, what Harriet did. In nineteen twelve, crossing the English Channel in what was little more than a skeleton of ashwood and canvas and a lawn chair took more courage than what Amelia Earhart did flying solo across the Atlantic Ocean.
1: Well, I hope now that people have have heard you talk about Harriet Quimby. We've piqued their interest to pick up the book and learn even more. We've been talking with Don Daylor. The new book is Fearless, Harriet Quimby, A Life Without Limit. Thank you so much for bringing this woman to our attention.
3: I'm so glad you're doing this. And I hope people read the book for the main reason that we need to know more about this woman. She deserves all the credit.
1: In her debut young adult novel, author Jen Ferguson introduces us to a young indigenous woman named Lou, who's desperately trying to hang on to the sweetness of one last summer before she and her friends go away to college. But when a letter from her biological father threatens the life she and her family have, she'll have to confront the bitter truth. I got to chat with Jen about how important representation in fiction is and why she had to write The Summer of Bitter and Sweet. So usually I start off all these interviews with asking some sort of variation on a question about what inspired an author to write a story. But with this book, it really feels like instead of having an inspiration to write the story, there was a need to write it. Am I wrong?
2: Mm. No, I don't think you're wrong. Not at all.
1: Tell us a little bit about what led to you putting this story on paper.
2: Okay, so um, I've been writing novels for a really long time. Like, I was the teenager who was writing novels in her bedroom instead of going out and hanging with her friends. Um, And I'd written about seven novels as an adult and kept getting feedback from agents saying that they were beautiful, but they couldn't sell them, or they were beautiful, but they didn't fall in love. So I was actually thinking about quitting writing before I wrote this book. And um, I was talking to a good friend of mine, Jamie Pacton, who is a YA author, and Jamie and I had been talking about a lot of things, about writing, about my own sort of new understanding of my sexuality and about sort of a lot of the colonial trauma I was going through in my early 30s um, after having been through the Canadian education system um, and, and trying to understand myself as a Métis person. Um, who also has white ancestry and jamie sort of said why don't you write that and and that was the moment where this book came together i i had to take the things that i was going through and and funnel them into the book and and this book turned out to be the book that everyone wanted to represent and the book that people wanted to publish so you mean there is
1: something in that whole old cliche about writing what you know
2: well there definitely (laughs) is right um So for me as a fiction writer, I I tend to borrow things from my friends and family and the world around me. And usually I'll throw out a disclaimer. I'll be like, oh, you just told me a really great story. That may end up in a novel at some point in time. Um, And the combination of, of writing the things you know around you and then playing and fictionalizing and changing things so that your story shape works better Um, Like that's, that's the joy of fiction writing.
1: And what you've done here with this book is, is you've written a book for, for other girls like you who, while growing up, and I know you said you were a voracious reader, you didn't see stories that reflected who you were. And just tell me why it's so critical to have a story like this and to see yourself represented in fiction. Of
2: course. Um, So. So one of the things about um, the sort of changing landscape of particularly children's literature is that we are starting to see more and more um, people represented who were never represented before. And I was a late bloomer. Um, I was a late bloomer coming to understand myself as demisexual, and I was a late bloomer, like, shucking off the colonial... Um, baggage that I was carrying around and part of the reason why it took me so long to get there was that I didn't have books and media that like showed me that these things were normal or showed me um, experiences of a particular character doing a similar thing so there's so much power in being able to read a story and to identify with the character's experience to see a part of yourself reflected in them you're never going to see your exact journey reflected in any character even if you share the same marginalization with them but to be able to see them um, carrying around something that you also identify with is is incredibly powerful for identity development especially in children and young adults
1: and I think this is the point where maybe I should backtrack a little bit and ask you to tell us about who Lou is and what her story is
2: of course so Lou is 18 years old, and she's just graduated from high school. This book takes place sort of the last week of high school throughout Labor Day weekends. Lou is Métis on her mother's side, and her biological father is a white settler. So Lou is working for her family's organic dairy and ice cream shack business for the summer with her first and recently ex-boyfriend's. Her best friend, uh, Florence, who is going through some mental health crisis of her own that summer. And then uh, her former best friend, King, returns to town after three years with no contact. And so this sounds like a lot is already going on in Lou's <laughs> life. And then she receives a letter from her biological father. And he is getting out of prison, and he wants to have a relationship with her. And this is something that Lou uh, just absolutely does not want, but does not know how to deal with.
1: It is a lot, but I guess when you take a step back and think about it, when you're a teenager, there really is a lot going on, and a lot of it's not in your control.
2: So that's one of the things that I've been reflecting on a lot lately: uh, the fact that when I was a teenager, um, I had a pretty, I, I had a stable home life, like. Um, I had good friends. I didn't have problems in school. School was really easy for me. When I had a job, it was great. But what'm I'm, I'm realizing is teens today, and like we don't even have to look at the pandemic. We can even put that aside. and they still have so much on their shoulders. Uh, the world is louder for teens today, and it's louder than it was for me, and it's certainly louder than it was for, for people of my parents' generation. So um, people who who sort of say like there's a lot going on in that book, there's a lot going on in teens' lives. This is just sort of realism.
1: I think, too, um, a lot of American readers might be surprised to learn while reading this book and also just in some news stories that we're, that have started to pop up over the last year or so about how dark of a history Canada has with its Indigenous people and how much it parallels what happened in this country.
2: Yeah, so um I really struggle with Americans when they they seem to think Canada's like this bright, shining, polite example of something because um the border between our our two nations doesn't really change a lot when it comes to how the colonial powers worked and and how they continue to work particularly on on indigenous peoples um but But that's that's not the only people that colonial governments act against, right? So um, there is a human rights, an ongoing human rights crisis of missing, murdered, Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people that is acknowledged in Canada and talked about in Canada uh, that we're, we're just only starting to talk about in the U.S. And that human rights crisis is happening here as well.
1: And these indigenous women and angry girls—they—you've dedicated your book to them.
2: Yeah, I—I—I I, I wrote the dedication last. It was like the very last thing I wrote, and because there's so much going on in the summer of bitter and sweet, I've struggled to give it an elevator pitch. I struggled to tell people what it's about, and so it was this moment when I was finished, and I was like, oh. I'm I'm writing for teen girls who are who are angry about the world or angry about uh, what they have to carry. I'm writing for Indigenous girls who are not just carrying like all the regular teen girl stuff, but they're carrying the insidious racism of of the prairies or of where they live on their shoulders, and they're carrying taking care of their family and their community on their shoulders. So I, I realized I was really writing for for girls and angry girls and girls who felt like there was too much in their lives because that's that's lou and that's what lou's going through now all that
1: being said you admit that lou is not your favorite character in the book and it's <laughs> yes. it's her best friend who disappeared for three years and now has come back why is that
2: um So Lou might have a bit too much of me in her for me to like be able to love her unconditionally. (laughs) That might be something I need to talk to my therapist about. Um, But also um, King is, he's 18 and he's through some of the garbage that Lou is still going through, right? Like he's dealt with his sexuality. He knows who he is. He understands himself as a black Canadian, he, he doesn't have, like, big trauma around this anymore. Like, he, he's, he's through a lot of the things that she's going through. And he is a solid, emotionally literate teen man. And I, I find that really, really, really lovable. That he can understand others. And that he can he can figure out what others need. And he can still go for what he wants at the same time.
1: And you've had people say to you that he's too good of a guy, right?
2: Yeah. So like a, a number of the literary agents who offered to represent me were like, I have teen boys. This is not what teen boys look like. <laughs> like teen boys are horrible and smelly. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's also a book, right? <laughs> and I've, I've also met teen boys who are emotionally literate and, and have things together in a way that some other teams don't have together yet, right? So, like that can be realism too. Um, and and like I love like a bad boy in literature, but that's not who who Lou needs. Like that's not who she needed in this book. She needed someone who was going to be patient with her and then push her when she needed to be pushed.
1: Who's the ideal reader for this story?
2: So I I, I wrote it for for teens, for sure. I wrote it for Indigenous teens, for sure. But I think the ideal reader for this story is anyone who likes big feelings um, and wants to examine the world that we live in a little more in a safe way, like with a book on their couch under a blanket with some tea.
1: And I just want to close this interview with a completely, maybe not so random, but definitely not a serious <laughs> question, Do it. which is seeing how much the story revolves around ice cream. What's your favorite commercial flavor? And then what would be your favorite uh, organic uh, mischief yeah. creamery flavor? <laughs>
2: So um, that's the thing about the summer of bitter and sweet. There's a lot going on in the book, but there's still like the sweetness of teen life and there's tons and tons of ice cream. Um, my favorite commercial flavor hands down is uh, mint chocolate chip ice cream. I want it super, super green and I don't want like chocolate shavings. I want like chocolate chunks. And then um, I am, I'm a little boring. I'll, I'll like own up to that. So my favorite mischief creamery flavor would probably be one of the summer berries like I love raspberry and strawberry um, and Saskatoon berry is delicious if you get a chance to try Saskatoon berry any I want dessert. to
1: after reading this book and reading about it it's like <laughs> I really need to find a place that makes ice cream like this <laughs> we've been talking with Jen Ferguson the book is the summer of bitter and sweet Jen thank you so much for your time today
2: Thanks very much. I enjoyed talking with you.
1: And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we chat with the first Black woman to visit every country in the world. And the new photo book, Chronicling Her Journeys. Major case of envy. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. And if you haven't already... Please subscribe to this podcast in the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lisa Germovich.